Hi, this is Carly Smith, and you are listening to The Probiotic Life. This podcast is where we explore the intricate relationships between human health, soil health, and ecological systems. Join me now for another exploratory conversation on The Probiotic Life. Welcome to another episode of The Probiotic Life. I'm your host, Ben Klenner. Today, we're going to be talking to Carly Smith. She is a lover of all things fermenting. And I initially got connected with her uh, when I was reaching out to sponsors one day. Uh, She works for the company culturesforhealth.com. And no, this isn't going to be an infomercial episode. They decided not to become a sponsor, but I thought, hey, it would be fun to interview someone that works for a fermentation company and just have a good old chat about fermenting in general. So I consider Carly to be one of those everyday heroes spreading their message about the probiotic life and fermentation. So join us as Carly shares her story And we both share a few fermentation stories that might even make you laugh. Also, what did you guys think about Confiture's music? Did you like it? Do you want to hear more of it on the podcast? I like the idea of having a bit more music on this podcast. So I'll play another sample today. And check them out, confitureband.com. And also, coming up, I'm super excited to announce that we'll be having Jack Gilbert of the Gilbert Lab on the show soon. He is one of the leading researchers of the microbiome and how it interacts in the urban environment. So, that's all for now. And without further ado, here is the interview with Carly Smith. Welcome, everybody. Today on the podcast, we have Carly from Cultures from Health. Welcome to the show, Carly. Thanks for having me, Ben. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I we just had a, a bit of a chat before then, and I was saying that I saw the Cultures for Health website a couple of times um, on my browsing of everything probiotic. Um, so, yeah, do you want to share with us about how you actually got connected with Cultures for Health? Yeah, of course. Um, So I started fermenting foods, I would want to say, about 10 years ago. Um, I got hooked on Sandra Ellix Katz's book, Wild Fermentation, and just kind of did it on my own for a long time. I worked as a cook um, while I came upon the book and just started doing all sorts of experiments on my own. And then fast forward a few years and I was without a job and I was looking for work. Um, Originally I'm from Wisconsin and Cultures for Health is based in North Carolina. And I was just searching the internet for a job and noticed that Cultures for Health was looking for people to work for them and I jumped at the chance and it just, now here I am. (laughs) So it's been a lot of fun. Um, I started, I was just stuffing cultures into boxes and folding them up and stuff like that. Um, And then I, you know, showed enthusiasm for doing other things around the business. So I was working in customer support Um, and then once we got our production facility up and running in North Carolina, I was working there for a little while. Um, I'm 
one of the only people in the company who knew a lot about culturing before. Of course, the founder knows quite a bit and um, the other customer support people know a lot. So anyway, I was working in the production facility just to kind of oversee everything and also to grow and harvest the cultures, which is a lot of fun and really cool to see at a larger scale. And then now I'm back in customer support as kind of our team lead, meaning I take on a little more responsibility than everyone else, but we believe that everyone is equal. So just kind of want to get rid of that hierarchy. Mm, okay, cool. That's interesting. And how, how did you actually come into fermentation? You said you, you uh, read Sandor Katz's book. Um, what, what sort of led you to read that? My roommate at the time, she was uh, very into reading. She was a teacher and was pretty much reading every book that, you know, sounded somewhat interesting. And I'm more of a picky reader. I, I just can't concentrate on books very well. But she showed me that book and I started reading a couple pages and then I just absolutely fell in love with it. And I read it from cover to cover. Um, the thing I like about the book is you don't need to read it that way. You can kind of jump around and find the information that you need and you don't necessarily have to read the whole book. But I just love Sander Alex Katz's writing style and his insights and just showed all the different possibilities with fermented foods as well as, you know, gardening and basically just living the probiotic life. <laughs> Yeah, if for that sure. makes sense. Yeah, uh, the, you know, this is the same with the art of fermentation. Um, his his bigger second and bigger book. Um, mm-hmm. you, know, you can sort of jump around, and I haven't read it cover to cover, but I definitely, um, you know, I'll read a section at a time, and and then be more inspired. Be like, oh, what can I do now? What what sort of uh, because what I really like about it is you sort of get the idea and then you have permission to just experiment because you realize, oh, it's actually people have been doing it for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And, you know. Exactly. It's it's just a natural process. Yeah, I haven't read that book cover to cover. It's quite a bit meatier. But, yeah, it's a great reference book just to show you every – thing that's already been done. Well, I shouldn't say everything, but a lot of things that have already been done and you can take it in so many different directions too, which is a lot of fun. Yeah. So, so you also mentioned, um, you were a a chef or you are a chef, were a chef, was trained as a chef. (laughs) Um, yeah, I wouldn't say I was quite a chef but um i worked as a cook in a in a couple small cafes we made everything from scratch we bought from the farmers market we had farmers you know dropping their produce off for us so i really got to know my college town in that way um and we also excuse me our cafe was a space where people would um, form meetings and there were a lot of community meetings held in there, including this group called Farm Shed, which was trying to facilitate more organic farming in the area. Um, so it was just really cool seeing those connections. I ended up um, working a little bit with the farmers in the area. Um, but anyway, yeah, I was uh, cooking at this cafe, and again, we didn't really have hierarchy, so... Each of us cooks got to, you know, design the specials and put our own little tweaks on the food and work with ingredients as they became available. We, you know, had to supplement our food with um, people aren't going to come to a cafe just to eat uh, root vegetables in the middle of winter. But anyway, um, it was just really exciting to be able to work with extra produce from the farmer's market and introduce people in the community to those foods as well. Mm-hmm. 
you know that you bring up an interesting point too. Like um, here in Perth, we can grow quite a lot of things most of the year round, but there's, you know, we still have the different seasons and um, I guess where it's colder, you know, <laughs> you might only have root vegetables. I mean, you can't just, well, maybe, I don't know, maybe you can survive on just potatoes and, <laughs> and beetroot, but I don't, I'm not sure if you'd get all the nutrition. How do you um, supplement that? What, what are the sort of things that you would have to look for for the um, nutrition? Well, I mean, back in the day, people would live off of meat and the root vegetables and things like that, but then, of course they would create their sauerkrauts and extra, you know, preserved foods in the fall when things were still uh, coming into season, you know, fresher foods. Mm-hmm. And then the uh, root vegetables would be able to store through the winter. I mean, in Wisconsin, you can't even grow root vegetables all year round. A lot of it is just stored. So it's really tough to eat local all year round. You can do it but not many people do, and I definitely don't blame them. But then there's also things like bread that you can get all year round, um, you know, canned foods. But yeah, a lot of people just kind of give up during the winter and buy their food at the grocery store. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to, uh, you know, I've read uh, a few different articles and things of... um, you know, all all the fruit comes into season, and and the stone fruit in the summertime, and everything right up to the end of um, or to the beginning of fall. And so, like, it's what what um, they were talking about is you know people and animals just gorge themselves on all this sugar, uh, carbohydrates, get fat, and then. <laughs> <laughs> basically use use that re- reserves over the winter time when there's not much to eat. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if you've ever um read the um the Laura Ingalls Wilder books, but uh my parents read those to me growing up and it, it, all all these sort of things that we're talking about just remind me of little stories that are in there, you know. <laughs> yeah, I didn't read too many of those, but I know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I used to kind of, um, you know, pretend to be a pine, part of a pioneer family uh, when I was a kid. And I I probably romanticized it, but um, I, I'm just fascinated by how people were able to make ends meet when the weather gets so cold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let, let's just, uh, I'd like to go back. You were talking about, yeah, you know, in your childhood, what, what are some, some of the sort of uh, lessons or um, things that you learned or experiences that have brought you to the place where you're at now? Um, well, my mom would cook us fresh dinners every single night. Um, and sadly, that's not the case for everybody, but um, I, once I had to move away to college, I realized how lucky I was. Um, but yeah, she would cook us meals from scratch every night and we would sit around the table and kind of bond over this meal that she cooked. Um, and then my dad would always grow a garden and he learned that from his own father, who's my grandpa. And I think those two things just really instilled an appreciation for from scratch food and connecting with the earth. So then when I went away to college and I was eating at the cafeteria, um, I guess I was a little spoiled from eating my mom's food and I just, (laughs) I couldn't stand it and I just felt sick and tired all the time. So that kind of kick started me into teaching myself how to cook Um, I'm sure I picked up a few things along the way with my parents growing up, but mostly I just had to teach myself because I lived away from them in school. So I I really liked what I studied in school, but I never really wanted to do it as a career. But 
while I was in college, I started cooking for myself and for friends and just found so much joy. And I got to meet people who were into potlucks and sharing their, you know, extra food as well as their knowledge and techniques. And that camaraderie really inspired me to want to take cooking into um, my career. So that's when I started cooking as a job. Um, nice. Yeah, that's really, it's an integral part of um, society, of communities, you know, food and, and cooking. Yeah, definitely. So I, I'd be interested, I'm interested to know how, where, how you went from there to, um, you know, getting into fermentation. But what, what were you studying at um, college? At first I was doing ecosystem restoration. Um, it was part of the forestry department at my school. And I got to take a lot of really cool classes, but the backbone of the school was more utilitarian use of the forest, which uh, at the time it really bothered me. I just, I was all about preserving the forest and, you know, leaving it in its natural state and trying to get it back to the state it was before logging and development happened. So... Ultimately, that's kind of what put me off of wanting to do a career in that. Interesting. So it was the, so yeah, I've actually heard that before. That so ecosystem restoration, but when you do it in or, or learn about it, it's it's more about how to manage a forest so that we can get it to produce more for us. <laughs> exactly, and it was a very young major at the time. I do realize that you know we need building materials and things like that. And at least the school was trying to teach it in a sustainable way, but that's just not what I really, that was not my goal to use the forest in a utilitarian way. It was more to get it back to its natural state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, I've definitely thought a lot about this and, um, <laughs> We could probably go down that tangent, but let, let's let's uh, stay <laughs> stay with the the fermentation. So, what were the first sort of things that you started to ferment? What were the things that you, I guess, that you got ideas from the book and then started to experiment with? Sure. Um, my most vivid memory of getting started was. Um, making sauerkraut with both purple and white cabbage and it turned into this fuchsia color and it was just so beautiful and so tasty and so easy and as I was making it it reminded me that my grandfather used to make a 10 gallon crock of it every winter (laughs) and he did it a little differently I would probably correct him if I could, like, he's not with us any longer, but um, he used to just let the top layer get all moldy and he wouldn't touch it until it was all the way done. So then it smelled really bad and you could <laughs> smell it all throughout the house. And then when it was finished, he would just scrape all that off and use the stuff underneath. <laughs> I guess at least now my dad and I can carry the legacy on and maybe improve upon the method a little bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 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 interesting how all the different cultures have their traditions of fermenting, and and sometimes the traditions is it was either the most practical or that's just the only way they knew how to do it. Yeah, exactly. So where did you go from there? What what um what else did you start to ferment? Um. I did all sorts of things, um, like kombucha and all different types of yogurt. Um, once I came upon, came upon Zili, my mind was just blown. Have you tried that? No. no. It's um, this Scandinavian yogurt, and if you take a spoonful of Zili, it will stay attached to the bowl of yogurt you're scooping it from. Oh, okay. Well, we had something it, similar to, I think, um, uh, well, actually, uh, my wife just bought some. It's like Icelandic yogurt. I don't know if that's the same thing, but it's quite 
it's quite sort of like flubber. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yep. Okay. Cool. Yeah, and pretty much the weirder the better for me. Um, I tried making natto. Have you tried that? No, uh, I don't think so. But that's with soybeans, isn't it? Yep, it's soybeans, and it's a bacterial ferment. Originally, it was fermented in rice husks, um, and I believe it was an unintentional ferment. But then they noticed that um, it made the beans more digestible and preserved them. Um, it's fascinating to me that it's a food that people decided to make on purpose because it's definitely one of the more acquired tastes. Um, when you smell it, you can pick up hints of like chocolate and blue cheese and all these really interesting aromas. But when you taste it, it's pretty overwhelming. Um, it's very pungent, but it's a traditional Japanese re- uh, breakfast. Okay. Um, and that is the same bacteria as um, what they make sake with. Is that right? Is that as- aspergillus something? That one is a little different. That one is a mold called koji. Oh, koji. Yeah. So it's it's a yeah. different different culture altogether. Yep. Mm. Yeah, the three soy cultures that I'm familiar with are koji, which is a mold, and then tempeh, which is another mold, and then natto, which is a bacteria. Oh, okay, cool. Very interesting. So you actually st- started um, playing around with that? Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It, I just bought a little tube of spore. No, actually, we sell tubes of store- spores at cultures for health, but, um, I found a little packet at a Korean restaurant, um, in my college town and just added that to freshly cooked beans and incubated it. And it came out all stringy, but that's what you're looking for. The reason why I transitioned from Vili to Natto is because they're both very stringy. Like you, in the case of natto, you can pull two beans apart and it almost looks like a spider web between them. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, if you look it up on YouTube, it's pretty fascinating. All right. Well, that sounds like uh, <laughs> one, one for my, uh, my list of things to ferment. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. But there's so many things to ferment. What, what are some of your, your favorite things? Um. I really like making kimchi just because you can throw pretty much anything into it and it'll turn out awesome. Um, Since I'm from Wisconsin and we're known for our dairy, I think that inspired me to get into yogurt and milk kefir as well. Mm -hmm. As far as the weirder ferments I've done, I guess this isn't weird, but I have also made... um, corned beef and corned venison. I was very pleased with the corned venison because it got rid of kind of the gamey taste. Um, I really like venison and not all of it is super gamey, but the meat, the particular meat that was given to me was on the gamey side and fermenting it took that away and it made it super tender and delicious. Okay. So how do you, how do you do corned venison? Okay. I'm, I'm thinking when you're talking about gamey food, I'm talking about, I'm thinking about kangaroo and it's, it's very gamey. So, you know, my brother, oh, my brother-in-law tried to make, um, they sold some mints, kangaroo mints and he tried to make, or he made, um, pasta with it. And it was like, whoa, that's like, <laughs> if we can just to- tone it down a bit, then, <laughs> So I'm very interested yeah, I, on how do, how do you, how would you do that? So you just add some salt. Some people add um, nitrate salt to it, but um, I didn't just because I've read that you don't necessarily need to, but it gives you that nice pink color that most people are familiar with when making corned beef. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and then you add some different spices like juniper berries and thyme and black pepper and mustard, you know, things like that. Um, and then if you have a super cold room, how like I did when I was in school, we would turn our heat down as far as humanly possible while still being able being able to live. <laughs> uh, then you wait about five to seven days and it's corn venison. Otherwise you can do it in your refrigerator if you don't have that cold of a room. Right. So it's, it's basically salt and spices and does it ferment it or it just like preserves it with the salt? It definitely ferments it. It gives it a unique flavor. Um, that's hard to explain, but it's definitely not just salty. Um, Mm. And then it also tenderizes the meat um, due to the activity of the bacterial enzymes. Mm. It sounds kind of weird, but it's delicious. Yeah, I don't think I've had it before, but um, yeah, okay, on my bucket list. You should uh, definitely try doing that with kangaroo meat. I didn't even know that was commonly eaten. It, mm, yeah, it is. I mean, not so much, I think. Um Maybe more in the country. I've eaten it oh, a few okay. times. People do like kangaroo burgers and stuff like that. But I, I think a majority of the time is given to the um, the dogs. Oh, uh, okay. Is it considered to be like a red meat or? Yeah, yeah. It's. It, it, I think it would be quite similar to venison. Um, oh, okay. It's, it's, it's wow, quite, cool. Quite a. Um, gamey like more gamey than you know something like rabbit or something like that um oh wow okay and it's not like they farm kangaroos kangaroos just they they just jump over all of the fences anyway so (laughs) they're just so so in australia here um people go and cull them just to you know to clear them out of an area which i don't necessarily agree with Uh, but i can understand if they're um you know becoming a nuisance and um, destroying crops. Well, my opinion is, well, let's figure out a way that we can all live together. But so, yeah, um, I remember a little while ago seeing a trailer full of dead kangaroos. Oh, man. Someone driving down the freeway with like the arms sticking out everywhere. Uh, That's so disturbing. (laughs) Anyway, so that's that's kangaroos (laughs) for you. Oh, man. So, so, but now, now you're on to you're in cultures for health, and you, uh, or you were able to be part of the actual um, culturing process. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Do you want to share share with us a little bit about like what they do there, and and I guess what what's what sizes like? I guess it's commercial a commercial kitchen there. Yep, we have a production facility. I'm really bad at estimating size. But um, it would be about thirty feet by fifty feet. It's not huge, but we just have mason jars upon mason jars full of kombucha brewing and milk kefir and water kefir. Um, those are the three things that we make ourselves. Oh, and then our gluten-free sourdough. We have to do our other sourdoughs in a different facility due to gluten allergies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting making such a natural product that's not necessarily predictable um, because, you know, if you're making a product in the lab under very sterile and controlled conditions, you can predict better how everything is going to turn out, but these are natural microbes, so if they're going to take their time, they're going to take their time. Um, if they're not going to double in size in the in you know x number of days, we can't force them to. But we believe that that makes them valuable. Um, you know, it's an asset to sell a natural product mm-hmm. instead of having to sell this product that's genetically modified or created in a lab but it's also really interesting just to see them 
dividing and growing just like you would grow something on a farm. Um, the kombucha scobies, you know, you can see them starting off as a little film and then they get thicker as they grow for longer. And then you can see the water kefir grains, you know, multiply overnight. You can't see the milk kefir grains cause they're in the milk, but you can see them bubbling away in the milk. So that was really cool. Um, I don't work in there anymore and it's been a while, but I still pop over there every once in a while and check things out. Cool. So, so, and, and you moving on up in the world, is that right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, just taking it in a different direction. Now I get to nerd out with fermentation enthusiasts all day and, um, try to help them get their cultures going. Um, it's been more of a challenge than I expected to try to cater to our audience because, um, I was, I just kind of assumed that our customer base would be just as excited and knowledgeable about fermentation as I was. But a lot of times it's people who are just getting into it for the first time. And there's all sorts of different reasons, but for example, they'll have not the best diet and they go to the doctor and their doctor encourages them to start drinking milk kefir, for example. So they don't necessarily have cooking experience either, but they just really want this thing to work to help cure themselves. And then other customers just really like the taste of kombucha and they're trying to, you know, kick their soda habit and they want to make it at home so they can save some money, um, and whatnot. So they don't necessarily know what they're looking for. And they, it's just a hard message to convey to someone, um, when something is working well and not so well or too well, (laughs) um, but it is a, kind of an honor to be able to teach people about these foods in such a way. Um, you know, it used to be passed down from generation to generation, but now it's our job to take this kind of lost art and science and bring it to a wide audience again. I was saying that it's hard to tell, it's hard to convey to someone if something is working versus not working versus too well. Um, sometimes we'll get people saying, my kefir grains aren't working. They turn the um, milk into curd and whey. And you don't want, you know, it's definitely not their fault for not knowing because they've never done this before. And, you know, if you end up with curd and whey, there's stuff you can do with it, but it's definitely not kefir. But you just have to tell them, hey, you're grains are doing great. You're doing everything exactly right. They're actually doing too well. So we would recommend, um, you know, giving them more food. And so it's, it's pretty fun to be able to have someone come in to email you and, uh, get all worried that their culture isn't working. And then you give them a gold star and tell them that they're doing great. They just need to you know, slightly t- tweak their method and then they're on their way to healthier living. And that's yeah. super rewarding. Yeah. I mean, it is a real, it's, it's sort of like farming or, you know, I've been a landscaper by trade. It, like it's a hands-on thing and it's, it's hard to <laughs> just read, yeah. read like, you know, a, a piece of, you know, whatever, a book or a text and an email and be like, okay, you're describing it to me, <laughs> but it's still sort of a hands-on experience. Yeah, definitely. And we're trying we're constantly trying to tweak our educational materials and videos and things like that. Um the biggest challenge is providing enough information without overwhelming um cuz you really can take these cultures in so many different directions, but a lot of people just need very simplified instructions to get them going. Mm-hmm. So when you're working with pros as well as beginners, there's just a lot of ground to cover. 
Yeah, yeah. Sounds like it's um, you've always got um, challenges to try and relate with them on their level. Yeah, exactly. So that's why we're here in customer support to kind of bridge the gap in any uh, lack of information in our already produced materials. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, um, I was looking on the site just uh, a little while ago. Um, so you sell you sell uh, like the scobies, the kombucha scobies, and the kefir grains, um, like dehydrated. Yep. So we just have a bunch of, um, well, I don't know if I, I guess it's not much of a secret. We just have a bunch of um, food dehydrators to dehydrate our cultures. And then we have activation steps as well as just maintaining the culture. Because, yeah, when you dehydrate the culture, it puts a little stress on them. But that way, you know, we can test them uh, for makeup as well as, you know, pathogens and the results will be the same from the time we dehydrate them to the time it reaches the customer's door. Whereas like I am all about fresh cultures, you know, passing between friends and I know some companies are able to sell fresh cultures, but um, there's no real way to know exactly what's going to change between the time you package and then it gets to the customer's door. Right. So it's like a a safety standard that you, that you just maintain. It's like, it's just going to be, you know exactly what you're sending out and you know what they're getting, what what someone's getting. And then, so what's the, cause I, I've never done it that way of actually rehydrating, say a a kombucha scoby. What's the process? It's a little bit different than just um, doing what you do with kombucha. Yep. So our kombucha scobies um, come with the microbes on them, but the scoby itself isn't going to just spring back to life. So what you do is you add the scoby to some um, cooled down sweet tea along with some distilled white vinegar and let that sit for a month. So Um, the vinegar actually stops uh, any other bacteria from getting on there. Is that right? Um, it actually just brings the pH down so that no harmful microbes can get into the tea. Right. Um, so you don't necessarily want to drink that. You just, you just want to use it to culture the the new stuff. You can drink it. Um, we have recipes on our website on how to turn it into like a meat marinade or salad dressing, things like that. But yeah, it's not quite potent kombucha that first (laughs) month. (laughs) Um, but the, in the, in that first month, the microbes will start to awaken and then you take some of that first month tea along with your dehydrated SCOBY and you start your first batch. And that's when, that's when the magic starts happening. Cool. And then, and what, what's your, what's your, like, um, I know I'm probably asking all this stuff that's on the website, but, um, just for our listeners to, to, to hear, like, what's, what's your standard recipe for, um, making the sweet tea? Uh, we put in a quarter cup of white cane sugar, um, and two tea bags to make about a quart of kombucha, and then uh, a quarter cup of distilled white vinegar. Oh, Sorry, okay. it, it it ends up being um, two and a half to three and a half cups of sweet tea. You know, just brew two tea bags in some water, and then um, you add the sugar and the distilled white vinegar, and it equals about a quart. Oh, okay, so altogether it's a quart, which is yeah, uh, which is about a liter. Okay, a liter, yeah. All oh, right, so that's quite a lot of um, of sugar you added in there, then. Yep, but the microbes will turn that into healthy acids, um, and you can tell by the taste. It, it will start off very sweet, and then over the course of you know thirty days, it will become much more sour. And um, some people like it on the sweet side; some people like it on the sour side, but. It's most potent when it's nice and sour. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's the way that I used to um, make it. Now I do. So I brew it in a um, like a ten liter 
um, stainless steel pot. Um, oh, wow. Cool. And yeah, because we're usually got, well, we've got three three sort of uh, vats going of it. So we go through it pretty quickly in our house. So, oh, wow. Uh, got to make uh, 10 litres every, probably every like five to six days. But um, the uh, the weather's, you know, getting a little bit cooler. And um, now I just got to get used to the fact that it's going to take longer again. <laughs> but, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so 10 litres then I put in... Um, uh, only a cup and a half of sugar and of brown sugar. And then, um, I use per poe tea as well. And what I find is that actually oh, okay. it, so it's not as sweet to start off with, but, um, it's a, then it doesn't turn as sour over a longer brew, which also means that I can put it in it and do a secondary fermentation with, you know, whatever I have. Some of my favorite things to do it with is like, um, Thai basil, um, kefir, oh. lime, kefir lime leaves, um, all sorts of like herbs, like lemongrass. I try and grow as much of the stuff to flavor it as possible. And, oh, that's so and, cool! And then when I um, bottle it, then I just uh, then I'll prime it with a bit of bit more sugar. Then I'll get that good carbonation. Yum! Yeah, that sounds delicious. I I don't normally drink kombucha and water kefir in the winter, so that season is coming upon us. Um, so I'm, I'm getting my water kefir, um, back to life and I made a very gingery ginger beer out of it. Nice. That's my favorite thing to make. Yeah. Cool. Ginger beer. But I'll have to make some herbal tonics. I saw, uh, your Instagram photo of that herbal tonic that you started. Have, have you harvested yeah. that yet? Yeah. So, um, I have basically split that up into two um, fermentation. So I, I just tried one straight away. Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, the, the flavors are nice, but there's still too much sugar in it. It's, it's, uh, seems to be taking a long time to, um, to brew. So I'm, I've just got it in some, um, two liters, I guess they're half, like half gallon, um, glass bottles. And I just got it, got it sitting there. They'll, they'll just sit there for a while and I'll just taste it every once in a while to see how it goes. Is it a wild ferment or did you add some sort of... No, I, so I, I actually added um, some stuff from a um, like a probiotic drink. So it was not, not like a kombucha, but an actual probiotic liquid. And I was like, okay, I'll, oh, add, okay. I'll add some of that. And because uh, I think it had like 12 or 10 or 12 different strains of stuff in it. Um, oh, okay. So a <laughs> bit, bit, bit of an experiment. Um but yeah, I definitely like doing it with the kombucha. What I am really excited about is we, uh, our neighbour and um, my wife's sister just gave us a bucket load of mangoes. So I made some mango oh, mango wow. cider, and I had Yum. a little had a little sip as I was uh, racking it off into the uh, the big glass fermenter, and oh, I, I'm excited for that. I don't think that will last very long in our house. <laughs> so you're doing an alcoholic ferment of that? That's right. Yeah. Yum. Yeah, I wish we could grow mangoes in North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> we get more fruits than we do in Wisconsin, but we get delicious peaches, though. Yep. I, I'm sure you could do lots of kvass, though, with your um, beetroots. Yeah, you can do that. Um, I really like just incorporating beets into things like kimchi, so it's not just, just... I mean, I do love beets, but yeah, I like to mix it in with other stuff, too. Mm-hmm. And I tend to eat more fermented foods than drink, even though I, I love fermented drinks. I don't know why I don't make them more often. Maybe we should live next to each other and we can yeah. trade more stuff. <laughs> I mean, that's that's what it is about community, right? You can't do everything yourself. You know, somebody's yeah. going to do the sourdough bread. Somebody can do the sauerkraut and maybe kimchi. Somebody can make the, the beer or the mead or whatever you got. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, um, and you were talking about, oh, uh, you mentioned in the email that you uh, do some workshops or, so, or something as well. So you do some hands-on sort of stuff as well? Yeah, I don't do them super regularly, but I have taught hands-on workshops about kimchi and yogurt and milk kefir, things like that. Um, the first one I ever did was at this alternative energy fair, um, back in Wisconsin, the 
fair itself draws about 20,000 people, but at the time fermentation was still pretty obscure. So I was expecting maybe five to 10 fellow fermentation nerds coming to my presentation, but then over 60 people showed up and, um, since it was my first presentation, I wasn't the most prepared for it. So I gave a short spiel and then it turned into just an awesome question and answer session. Everybody's questions just kind of complemented each other's and it felt like a really connecting experience. And then I also gave away some starters to everybody who attended um, or at least gave up. I had enough for a bunch of people. I gave away um, kombucha scobies and then I encouraged other people to stay in touch and ask if they needed anything. Um, so the cool part was I did the same presentation the following year with um, maybe a few more people than the previous year, but um, people came up to me and told me that they still had their cultures going from the one that I gave them. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and then I just do a lot of smaller, very informal presentations here and there, usually inspired by people saying, you should do a workshop. I want to learn how to do, you know, kimchi or kombucha, things like that. So yeah. Yeah. Very fun. Yeah. I enjoy doing workshops too. I do, I do, um, composting workshops and, and again, you know, like how do you give people, this information, it's, it's a simple process to do, but, you know, mm-hmm. give them just enough to get them going and give them some success without overwhelming them. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Speaking of compost, um, I was uh, volunteering on a farm in Argentina. I was, like, working as kind of a farmhand. Uh, the organization is called WOOF. It stands for Work Weekends on Organic Farms. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I've done that too. But anyway, oh, awesome. Yeah. So I traveled around Argentina and did that. And I stayed on this biodynamic farm, which is absolutely fascinating. Um, and they had this big tank full of this stinky liquid. And every time I walked by, I was like, oh my gosh, I don't even know. I, I do not <laughs> want to ask what was in there. But then I found out that they fill it with water and then. Um, Every year when the nettles came into bloom. Do, do you have nettles in Australia? Uh, yeah. yeah we do you do. know what I'm talking about? Okay. Yeah. Uh, um, you mean like stinging nettles? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, they would uh, kind of grow in the pathways on the farm. So they would, you know, pick them so you didn't have to run into them every time. And they would put them in this liquid. And that was a form of liquid compost. So it would actually ferment. Right, and so the thing would just sit sit there all all year long pretty much. Yeah. I thought that was really cool. Wow, yeah. I haven't actually tried that yet. That's something that I've uh, I've been interested in, but um at Perth City Farm where I've uh, I do a bit of work and done some volunteering, they they do all sorts of different things like that and um yeah, so that'd be interesting. So, so you travelled around Argentina doing this woofing. Yep, um, for about six months. Um, that was in between cooking and then trying to figure out what else I wanted to do. I decided not to do, not to pursue cooking. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, I went to Argentina to do some woofing and learn better Spanish, um, and. It was just so much fun. I got to do such a variety of different farm tasks, like everything from herding sheep to, um, you know, growing quinoa and amaranth and harvesting all sorts of fruits that I had never seen or had never grown myself just because the weather never, it doesn't allow it in, um, the United States. Um, so it was also really cool being able to show these farms different fermentation techniques to preserve their harvest. So obviously I learned a ton from them, 
but then it ended up being a really cool information exchange as well as work exchange. Oh, that's fantastic. They, um, I think it's South America that they have like kefir, right? They have the same, same thing, the uh, tobiccos, is it? Yes. Um, I didn't see anyone in Argentina doing that, but I did. Was that uh, in Brazil maybe? Well, I'm sure people do it in Argentina. I just didn't run into anyone who did it. But when I was traveling through Chile, I stayed with this family who was making it, which is really cool to see. Nice. Um, and did you have mate as well? You have a mate? Oh, yeah. I love that stuff now. <laughs> when I first got there, I was like, okay, this is okay. Um, I love trying new things. So I always tried new things with an open mind. And it was decent. But then... Once I started drinking it every day, I started to love it. And I love the ceremony that they do where they pass it around between friends. Yeah, yep. I, I've uh, shared that with some people here. And mo- mostly it's only the um, the South Americans that are like, oh, you got mate, you got mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I made a um, yerba mate kombucha once. Um, I tried to perpetuate the scoby on it and... Unfortunately, my SCOBY didn't uh, do so well on it, but I got a couple batches to work, and that was really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, that's. Uh, I, I tried that as well, and it, it's like, yeah, not so much. And for whatever reason, <laughs> mine foamed quite a bit. Like I was like, oh, really, I'm not sure if it's supposed to foam. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I still, I still uh, tried drinking it because I, I'll almost try almost anything sometimes sometimes to my detriment (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah have you gotten sick off your your ferments Uh, before uh not kombucha so much i haven't drank drank it with um mold but i will tell you not too long ago i had um i had some um some yeast that i was just keeping alive by um giving it a little bit more sugar water and then uh you know, either drinking the other stuff or getting rid of it. But you know, uh-huh. when you have a lot of ferments, sometimes things get left at the back of the shelf. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I got this, I was like, Hmm, I had like, I guess it would be like half a quart, you know, like about 500 mils of this. Um, all the yeast had died, gone to the bottom and it had been sitting there. must've been like for about two or three months. And it was very clear. It was like, oh, wow, this is like, you know, what you want to see with beer um, when, when the yeast settles to the bottom. So, uh-huh. so I'm like, okay, I'll pour it. I'll pour it into a um, to a um, beer glass and taste it. And I was like, whoa, this is strong. And then I was like, oh, I'll just, I'll just drink it. Next day, n- n- no kidding, like I had the worst hangover I have uh... almost ever had, I think. And like it lasted all day. And I was like... I think oh I just poisoned my myself. So. <laughs> I have a similar story. I made some um, mostly wild fermented cider. I did add a little bit of uh, brewer's yeast to it, but I didn't pasteurize the cider. And I read on the internet um, that you could turn it into a more concentrated alcohol by putting it in the freezer and then taking the stuff that actually turned into ice out and then the remaining liquid would be like a concentrated alcohol. Oh, right, okay. So I drank a small glass of that and it was pretty tasty, but wow, I did not feel good the next day. <laughs> <laughs> so my, that experiment was kind of a failure, but it was still really interesting. Note to self, don't do that again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, it's been very interesting. Uh, I'm interested in, in where would you like to go from here? So now you're, you're in a place where you get to talk about fermentation. Sounds like almost all day long. Um, yeah. At what, where, where do you see yourself going from this point? Well, my career goal is to start my own business at some point. Um, since I do enjoy my job so much, I'm not in much of a rush but I'm trying to figure out exactly what product or service to sell um, because I am so interested in food and fermentation. It will most likely have to do with that. But um, lately I've 
kind of been addicted to reading about um, fungi in terms of like medicinal mushrooms and gourmet mushrooms, as well as what they can do for the environment. Um, so potentially incorporating that into my business as well. So yeah, I, I guess TBD. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I mean, it's interesting. You just talk about fungi because, uh, I have gone through seasons and now I'm just in another season where I've just been listening to, um, heaps of talks by Paul Stamets. Oh yeah. He's what, he's the author I'm reading right now. Okay, cool. Which, which book are you reading? Uh, Mycelium Running, and I just ordered Growing Medicinal and Gourmet Mushrooms um, as well. And that's by him as well. And then I got a mushroom identification book um, that's specific to the Southeast. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I I grew up in Vancouver, and now coming uh, living in, in Perth here in Australia, I realize... Perth is not the greatest for for mushrooms. I mean, there is some cool uh, fungi around, but the Pacific Northwest is like the best place in the world, I think. Oh, yeah. For fungi. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised the Southeast isn't that great. I thought we would be teeming with fungi, but when I look around the woods, I don't see a whole lot, but maybe I'm just looking in the wrong place and I don't know the, um, the habitats as well as I did when I was in Wisconsin, but mm-hmm. still very interesting. And you can definitely still cultivate mushrooms here. Great. Yeah. That's, that's, um, my next one. As I probably said already, like three or four times it's on my list to do. <laughs> yeah. So I guess, um, the last thing I want to say about the mushroom thing is it definitely ties to fermentation in that with fermentation, you're cultivating yeast, which is a fungi, so to me, it's only natural to bridge into mushrooms and molds and other forms of fungi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think every, every little bit that you do like that, it does actually help you get grounded, get connected to nature, get, get in, mm-hmm. tune, in tune with your surroundings. Totally agree. So Carly, I want to thank you for being on the probiotic life today. Um, so you do work for Cultures for Health. So I'm, I'm happy for you to um, give them a plug or uh, anything else that you want to share with us for the end of the interview. Okay, great. Well, yeah, Ben, thank you so much for having me on the show today. It's been a lot of fun talking with you. Um, to the listeners, I'd like to recommend visiting our website, culturesforhealth.com. And you can sign up for our newsletter, which will also give you access to our free ebooks, which is hundreds of pages of recipes and instructions and background information on fermentation. Um, you can also buy all sorts of different cultures and fermentation equipment and just browse our website for informational articles and recipes and things like that. I might be a little biased, but I think it's a pretty great website. Lots of diff- lots of information. So feel free to check that out and send us an email if you have any questions. Um, and I just also want to thank everybody for listening. So yeah, thanks, Ben. Awesome. Thanks, Carly. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks again, Carly, for sharing. I'll put links to culturesforhealth.com in the show notes. And we always love a bit of feedback. So tell us what you think of this episode. Also, if you do enjoy this content, will you please take a moment to give us a rating and review on whatever platform you listen to us on? I hope that you are inspired to go out there and live a probiotic life. And until next time... Cheers. Thank you for listening to The Probiotic Life. You can find us on Facebook at The Probiotic Life, on Instagram, The Probiotic Life, and on our website, theprobiotic.life.